Hello, opera fans. My name is Mike Schaub, here as always with the lovely and delightful Marin Lazian. Hello. And boy, do we have a gory one for you today. It's all about lust, murder, and mutilation. Welcome to He Sang, She Sang, the show about opera from WQXR. Today, we're talking about Salome by Richard Strauss. We're going to learn just exactly how a sweet, innocent 16-year-old princess transforms into a deranged corpse mutilator over the course of an opera, and we're going to try to figure out just what exactly Richard Strauss was thinking when he wrote this thing. We'll also learn all about the scandal surrounding its premiere, and I'll take you up to the Met to meet Salome herself, soprano Patricia Reset. But right now, we've got a special guest here live in the studio, music writer Paul Thomason. Hi, Paul. Hey, delighted to be here. How's it going today? It's always a good day when I get to talk about Strauss. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, let's get right into it. Paul, can you quickly summarize, for those of us who've never seen the opera, what's going on in Salome? <laughs> <laughs> it's based on Oscar Wilde's play. And if you know your New Testament at all, it's a story that appears in some form in the New Testament. Salome is a Judean princess who, to put it briefly, dances for her stepfather, King Herod. Uh, and in exchange, he's promised her anything she wants, and she says, give me the head of John the Baptist, which horrifies him, and she continues to insist, and he finally gives it to her. She wants the head because, and this is not in the Bible, but it is in Oscar Wilde and in the opera, she has become smitten with John the Baptist in a very brief encounter in which John tells her to go away. He wants nothing to do with her. He curses her. And this makes her very excited, but she's angry because he's rejected her. And so she asks for the head of John the Baptist, and she gets it. And in one of the great scenes in all of opera, it lasts for about a quarter of an hour, she sings to the severed head of John the Baptist on its silver platter about how much she wants to kiss it, and she does. And Herod is horrified and orders the soldiers to crush her to death beneath their shields. Wow, that sounds crazy even for, like, opera standards. Is this is this one of the crazier operas out there? Yeah, has to be. <laughs> it's all—that's a good term. It's, a, it's all out there. And that was one of the reasons it was so successful slash scandalous when it premiered in 1905 and for the next 20 or 30 years. A good performance is still pretty shocking because— while we're kind of used to the story at this point, Strauss's music is incredibly vivid. So if you listen to the music, you can't get away from it. So, like, you don't actually have to see all the craziness going on stage, meaning it translates pretty well to the radio? Yes. A recording, if you have a vague idea of the story, if you just listen to the music, is gripping, and you may not quite know exactly what the movement's going on on stage at the moment— but it grabs you and pulls you right into it and doesn't let you go. And all of the madness is there, too. I mean, the, uh, they talk about madness in the opera and, you know, they describe each other. Salome is described as being a madwoman several times. And that's all in the music as well. You kind of hear the insanity of what's happening in their minds and on the stage in the orchestra pit. Right. Well, that's that's good for us because um, I don't know if you guys at home have noticed, but there's no video to this show. <laughs> it's also important that Salome is mad. And I was listening to my favorite final scene, the great Luba Velich, a couple nights ago. And 
it's quite clear from her performance that she's absolutely demented. She's at, at, during the final scene. She's totally off in her other world. It's it's a dreamscape for her. But it's important to know that Salome doesn't start off that way. She really starts off as an innocent virgin. Strauss said she was sixteen. And if you get a Salome who comes on swinging from a Las Vegas stripper pole, <laughs> there's nowhere to go. So it's important that at the beginning, and this is reflected in the music, the, the, her first music is very gossamer. She's a young, innocent, very beautiful princess. It's after the encounter with John when she keeps saying, oh, your body is so beautiful, your body is so white, let me touch your body. And then she goes on to, oh, your hair, and then finally your mouth, you know, let me kiss your mouth. And his rejection, that's when she begins going into the her dementia. And it ramps up over the course of the opera in a way, although there's a time where Salome is quiet for a while. And yeah. it's not until Herod's asked her to dance several times and it finally becomes clear that she's going to be able to ask for what she wants as a reward that she suddenly springs to life again. She goes from lying dormant to um, to springing to action and doing this dance and then finally demanding this head on a platter. And from the moment that she she recognizes that she's going to have the opportunity to get what she ultimately wants, she kind of starts on this trajectory and goes from... Zero to a million in terms of... Exactly. Yeah. She sounds like a, kind of like a spoiled brat who gets told no for the first time. Totally. But think of it. She's a teenager. She's a princess. Who's going to tell her no in those days? She was very pampered. And seemingly beautiful. Beautiful. And that was one of the things that, uh, that fascinated her about John the Baptist. He was so focused on preaching about Jesus and repent for sins... And he was a very four-square, forthright person. didn't want anything to do with her. His single-mindedness was one of her fascinations. And she's she was so used to being looked at by everyone. The first thing that she says basically when she when she enters the scene, you know, she was down at this feast with with Herod and other people and she's tired of him looking at her creepily. Um Naraboth. The, the opera begins with Naraboth saying, Wie schön ist die Prinzessin Salome heute Nacht? How beautiful is the Princess Salome tonight? Yep. And the page, who's standing by Naraboth, says, you look at her too much. Don't do that. You're going to get in trouble. And Herodias is constantly saying to Herod, you look at her too much. Right. It's, it's getting you in trouble <laughs> with me, your wife. So she's, she's just, she's stared at by everybody. And John the Baptist is the one person who says, 
I don't want to look at you. In fact, he refuses to look at her. And in the final scene, she says, if you had looked at me, you would have loved me. So it's like the classic human tale of you always want what you can't have. Exactly. Exactly. And the, the whole that whole looking voyeuristic, exhibitionistic, psychosexual, blah, 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 was an important part of the scandal around the Oscar Wilde play and then the, the Strauss opera. Because remember, this was end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, when all the Freudian stuff was coming up. So this fed right into that. Strauss knew of the sensationalism of the story. He was attracted to that because Strauss was always a very good marketing guy. He knew it would be great for the box office. But there were other things that could have been great at the box office. And he understood that this opera presented him the golden opportunity to write music that not only described extremely vivid characters, but describe their relationship. And he could use the orchestra to convey all of the uh, the atmosphere about it, of what was going on and how it was changing. It was tailor-made for that. So that's really why he picked it. But the fact that he knew there would be a lot of controversy was Didn't another hurt. plus. <laughs> yeah, it must have raised a bunch of eyebrows in the Opera Managers Guild. <laughs> <laughs> Did it ever. Um, so who's starring in this production this weekend at the Met? And more importantly, who gets naked? <laughs> um, well, starring as Salome is Patricia Reset, and she most certainly does get naked. You've seen this. I have seen this. Tell us about it. Why don't we hear from Patricia Reset herself? She's starring in Salome at the Met right now, but is also singing the role in Pittsburgh and L.A. this season. So when I had a chance to talk to her, I wanted to know what exactly it's like living with this character for months. The most acute reaction I had to it was when I was learning the piece. And it it is difficult. It is complex uh, to learn musically and vocally. So it it takes perhaps more time than other roles. So you have to live with that person longer, essentially, you know. And I remember I would spend hours and hours a day working on it. And I finally would just close the score say, I can't spend any more time with these people. They're horrible. (laughs) (laughs) Incidentally, you know, dysfunctional, broken personalities and characters on stage makes for fantastic theater. But it makes it, you know, I'm not sure I'd want to have dinner with (laughs) with the family. You wouldn't want to be at that dinner party that opens the opera? No, no, I think I'd skip that. So it's... That is an intense aspect to it because it's not a happy story. No. There's not really a a happy situation. There really aren't any good people. Right. So there's a lot of debauchery and there's a lot of decadence and a lot of dysfunction. And, you know, I mean, I always refer to Zalame as she's broken goods. Yeah. Damaged goods, I should say. 
Is there any fun in playing that? I, I realize it's heavy and there's an intensity Phenomenally to it. Phenomenally <laughs> fun. Oh, I will take that any day to playing The Innocent. Are you kidding me? It's fantastically fun. What do you think draws her so strongly to John the Baptist? Obviously, she's very physically attracted to him and, you know, his body and his hair and his lips. But do you think that's it? Do you think that's all that's going well, on? Well, I actually, I know that's what is literally said is, you know, I love your hair. I love your voice. I love your body. I love your, um, and I love your lips. They're so red. And while there is an essence of it being literal, I don't think it is. And I think Strauss has given us such complexity in every sense in the orchestra and in in the way in which the texts will repeat but be ever so slightly different um, in the rhythms. I think, to me, that indicates more of a psychological take on it, not quite so literal. So I wouldn't say, yes, Alamay's in love with Johanna Hahn. What I think it is is a person who's never been able to see goodness, doesn't know what it looks like, how it behaves, what it smells like, what it tastes like, has never experienced goodness and I mean that, and that's the depth of her damaged goods um, kind of existence. So in some ways, she can't help the choices she makes. That's all she knows. I mean, look at her parents, for heaven's sake. <laughs> I mean, we're, we are looking at a person that is unraveled. Don't ever say no to her. You better give me what I want. But does she really know what she wants? She's not, she's really, she's someone that couldn't be saved. And so I think what she sees in John the Baptist is this purity and this goodness, although he, in my opinion, even takes goodness and takes it too far to the other spectrum. And, you know, he's a zealot, so it's extreme. But I think that's what really strikes her is that this is something so incredibly fascinating and new and different. And he talks differently, the manner, the tone. And and Strauss is brilliant. I mean, he gives some measures that are in 4-4, where my part is all over the place. And so I think that's indicative of how we are to generally think of him and how she thinks of him. So I think there's an an intense, almost otherworldly fascination with who this person is and what he is and what he represents. She doesn't truly understand it. But what wins out is this impetuous, rotten person that says, you don't say no to me. No one says no to me. Thus, the head on the platter at the end. Right. So, (laughs) so, you know, the final scene of this opera is effectively an extended erotic aria to a a head on a silver platter to to his head on a silver platter. Well, and I would say it's more than just erotic. It's more than that. It's also, it's a temper tantrum. It's it's also, why why didn't you just look at me? It's childish. It's needy. It's not just erotic. I think it's far more complex. It's, it's, I think, frankly, it's not interesting to be played just as, oh, I love you and I, I want you. And I think there are many, many, many more, more layers there. So the, the famous dance of the seven veils, mm-hmm. um, in this production, you start out in sort of a sexy black pantsuit. Is that... it's, a, it's tails. Tails. Just full-out full tails, yes. <laughs> it's a striptease in this one. It is a striptease. And she, you know, I come out with top hat. And tails and vest and bustier and tap pants and fishnet stockings and the whole bit. And the dance is sort of a slow, sensuous reveal of everything. But it's also, it shows her naughtiness. And it um, it really, it, in my opinion, this dance always gives us a, a window into the realization Salome is having in her power as a sexual being. And I think that's the journey. 
I couldn't help but notice you got changed pretty quickly for that oh. scene. Do you have people backstage helping you? Oh, my goodness. That's or one of the most terrifying people? changes because I completely remove everything I was wearing and have to get literally bustier, the fishnet stockings, shoes, pants, vest, coat. So it's terrifying. That couldn't have been that much more than two minutes. No, I, I know. I really, it's, it's, ooh. How, how many people are back they're there? Just, they're two. Just two. But it's, it's nerve-wracking. Moving very quickly. Yes. Um, I think I'm right in saying that you do, there's the, the full Monty at the end of that. Full unless, reveal, baby. Yes, no, no body stocking No body there. stocking. No, uh, I, you're going to do it, you do it. Is that a terrifying moment, a liberating moment? <laughs> well, it's really, if, if, if. And it has been so far in the three times I've realized it in three, these three productions. If I'm really completely ensconced and involved in what that character is doing and everything, it's not me, Patricia Reset, removing... I mean, this sounds terrifying to actually articulate, removing her clothing in front of a 4,000-seat uh, audience, whatever. I'm so ensconced. It's Zalame. It's part of what she's doing. It's part of her power. It's part of, fine, here I am. Um, so, no, it's not. I mean, my partner always applauds my my <laughs> courage, <laughs> but it's all part of the the journey. I like to be very distracted from who I am and rather be ensconced in who, who this person is that I'm portraying. So, yeah, so far so good. And actually, speaking of your partner, and also in a way, speaking of a sort of artistic unveiling, you know, two thousand two. Yeah, through Opera News, you came out publicly, at least to the opera community, yeah. about your long-term relationship yeah. with your partner. Beth. Yeah. And now you've probably been together almost 20 years. Yes. We, right? Well, it'll be 20 years in June. So, okay. At the time that this became public, was that a difficult decision for you to make? It was a moment of being a little scared. I remember Rosie O'Donnell was outed that same week. I remember it's a big in, week in the for press. The... It was a big week for the lesbians. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know that she wanted to be, but I just remember I was just there was somehow a light shined on the risk one might take. But it was very short lived and, and, and it's one that I have not regretted. And um, I think the truth of who you are is is important, not just for being a part of a community that needs and should have support and equal rights. But it's also, I need to be myself. Why Why should I carve and hide something when, in fact, it's the biggest blessing in my life? That just seems completely paradoxical. So I, I no, it was a decision that was actually liberating. And so much of what it is to perform as these characters is the ability to be vulnerable, to be open, and in some ways to bring authentic emotion to each of these characters. Did you find that taking that step in your personal life affected your singing or your acting or your just the way that you felt about performing? Well, I was never terribly closeted as a person. It was just a, there's a slight difference when you're in a public profession and you make it public and you make you put it you, you allow it in print. And I have always been proud and endeavored to be really honest and truthful on stage and and so that that wasn't something that was changing in me but it was something that um actually fit with the way I was living my life artistically so I needed to line up professionally and personally yeah thank you so much Patricia Reset, for speaking with me today and toy toy for the rest of the run of thank Salome. you 
So what are the important arias that we should be listening up for on Saturday? There's only one real aria, I would say, and that's the final scene. It's very, I would hesitate to say it's a talky opera because that gives a wrong impression. But Strauss came up with his own libretto based on the German translation of the Oscar Wilde play. Meaning he wrote it himself? Meaning he took the German version of the play and simply crossed out lines. And he ended up crossing out about a third of it. No kidding. One, because it takes a lot longer to sing a line on stage than it does to say it. Two... If you read Wilde's play, it's very purple language. There's lots of repetition because he's using the words themselves to convey this um, sort of very perfumed, exotic, never-never land where this takes place. And Strauss realized, hey, I have an orchestra. I can do that with the orchestra. I don't need all these repetitions and the the 9,000 adverbs before we finally get to the verb. <laughs> so he ended up crossing out about a third of the, of the play, but the words are all Oscar Wilde's, and that's how he said it. So it's like a play. It's not a conventional opera where it starts with the chorus and the guy comes in and sings, and then he sings a little more. There's no overture. There's no prelude. There's just that wonderful clarinet sort of glissando, and Nauerbach starts with... And we're off and running with the play. Is the way that Strauss wrote it, as you described, taking it straight from the Oscar Wilde text, is that uncommon in opera? Can you think of another example of somebody having done that? Strauss did it in his next opera, which was Electra, which was based on a play by Hugo von Hofmannsthal, retelling of the ancient uh, Greek story. So it's kind of like a Strauss thing. Yeah, Strauss was obsessed with conveying drama in music, and he didn't want empty words. He didn't want empty gestures. He wanted to convey the drama and the emotion immediately. How long is this opera? How long, like, if you're going to go see it live or sit and listen to it on the radio, what, what, what are we talking about, the time investment? This is about 90 minutes to two hours long. It's about 90 minutes of music, but, you know, the production that I saw on Monday was about two hours. That's pretty efficient. Yeah. No intermission. No intermission. No it's intermission. just one act. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. So, Paul, the premieres of this opera, both in Germany and then also here in New York at the Met, they kind of made a splash, right? Exactly. Strauss offered the premiere to Dresden, which had done his previous opera, Feuersnacht, that had been sort of a success, but we don't know much about it today, uh, because he liked what they did. And even then, Dresden had an orchestra that was one of the wonders of the world. And at the first dress rehearsal, Marie Wittich, the first Salome, marched up to the conductor, handed him the score, and said, it's unsingable, I won't do it. I think she wasn't the only one either. I think other singers were also rebelling against... Exactly. A whole bunch of other singers came up and dumped their scores on the desk. And then they looked at the singer who had not, which is the, the tenor who was singing the role of Herod, 
uh, a man named Carl Berrien, who ended up singing in the Met's first performance as well. And they said, well, what do you think of this opera? And he said, well, I already know my part by heart, which shamed them. So they decided to, <laughs> to, to go back to work. Suck up. They <laughs> get it together. Jeez. At the dress rehearsal, the theater was full, except they had, had roped off the first five or six rows. And Strauss was sitting in the first row behind the orchestra, behind the conductor. And at the end, there was absolute silence. And the lights came up, and Strauss turned to the audience and said, well, I kind of liked it. (laughs) (laughs) And everybody then broke it, and everybody applauded. The first performance was a huge success, Um, 38 curtain calls. And within a few months, almost all the theaters were clamoring for it. It was premiered in Dresden December 9th, 1905. And... The Met wanted to give it, actually, the the next season, the 1906-1907 season. For some reason, the Met general manager, a man named Heinrich Conrad, decided to invite the audience for the dress rehearsal, which was fairly uncommon then. So he invited about 1,000 people, you know, contributors to the opera, movers and shakers in society and the arts, And for some reason, he scheduled it for Sunday. So Toot New York showed up at the Metropolitan on Sunday, having been at church, (laughs) to see Salome. Yes. And this was not perhaps Conrad's brightest idea. (laughs) But I want to stress again, this was not... This was not an unknown commodity. They knew what they were getting into. They should have, yeah. J.P. Morgan's married daughter was hugely offended. And she went to her father oh boy. and said, Daddy, uh-uh, you've got to stop this. The first performance was on Tuesday night. Wednesday morning, the board of directors met. The Met can't be associated with this, said J.P. Morgan. And the band lasted. The Met did not do Salome again until 1934. 1934. Yeah. Almost 30 years. Yeah. How did it come back? Was it just times changed and everybody was like, cool, severed head? There was that. There was also the fact that Oscar Hammerstein I, who was the grandfather of Oscar Hammerstein II, who wrote all those wonderful Rogers and Hammerstein things, his grandfather was a great theatrical impresario. And he was running something called the Manhattan Opera House, which was giving the Met a run for its money back in those days. In fact, eventually the Met paid him over a million dollars to go away and not produce opera for 10 years. Opera hush money. Exactly. <laughs> Get out of town. <laughs> and he, two years later, he produced the opera, produced Salome in French with Mary Garden. So it was not as though Manhattan was Salome less. You know, the orchestration is interesting. It's an orchestra of 105 instruments with a bunch of kind of unusual additions there. There's You have the organ, not usually in, a, in an opera pit. Right. Castanets. Also not usually there. Xylophone, harmonium, and a heclophon. Heclophon. What the heck is a heclophon? (laughs) (laughs) It's in the oboe family. Exactly. It's a double reed? Yes. Yeah. It's like uh, an oboe's big brother between the oboe and the bassoon. It sounds an octave lower than the oboe does. Okay. So Strauss was using that to kind of fill in that bit of the orchestra with that particular... <laughs> sound, you know, because he wanted that sound in that register. So, 105 musicians—that's a fairly large orchestra for a, for an opera pit. 
Yes? No? Yes. Yeah. You know, that instrumentation, There's there are a lot of moments where the music has a sort of exotic feel to it. And he has all of these sort of unusual instruments there to, to give that effect. It's not loud because he wanted 75 billion decibels always. I mean, there are a few times he gets that and he's thrilled about it. But he wanted the variety in colors to to go along with it. And the score, if you look at the score, it's filled with piano, pianissimo. Yeah, he actually, he said that it should be played like fairy music, like the fairy music of Mendelssohn. So yeah. there is, you know, you used the word gossamer before, Paul. There is a lot of that sort of light and and airy sound to it. But it is, it's still a huge undertaking for a singer, and especially for the soprano who sings Salome. It, it uh, traverses the wide expanse of the female voice. You know, her highest notes are very high, and her lowest notes are really, really low. They're sort of in the deep range of the contralto, which is the lowest female voice. During the final scene, she says about the mysteries of death, the the word totas, death, she goes down to a a G-flat below middle C. So you're right, it's very low. And even if if the soprano has the note securely, it's going to have a very dark sound to it. So, Paul, in the early productions, this wasn't generally presented, you know, as a standalone piece, right? It was presented usually in conjunction with some other maybe short opera. Right. In fact, the Met's first performance was preceded by a miscellaneous concert, if you can call miscellaneous a concert, where you've got singers like Enrique Caruso and Geraldine Farrar and (laughs) all of the greats of the time. And they were just doing their, you know, their their standards. (laughs) Exactly. Sort of. Come and and listen, and we will keep you entertained. Oddly enough, the one-act opera that was most often paired with Salome was Puccini's comic opera, Johnny Skiki. With the famous aria, O mio babino caro. And that went on until, I guess, the 50s. It was only in the early 60s that the Met decided Salome is enough on on its own. Thank you very much. Would they play the hit first and then Salome? Yeah, nothing could follow Solomon. (laughs) (laughs) And that's also true of orchestra concerts. The final scene of Salome is often sung by a star soprano who's singing with an orchestra, which allows the orchestra to show off in the Dance of the Seven Veils, and then she does the final scene. And that's always how the concert ends, because you can't follow anything after the final scene of Salome. Apparently there's a lot of blood to clean up, too. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, there you have it, some background and insight into Richard Strauss's Salome. Um, You can hear the entire opera this Saturday on WQXR. 
Before we go today, we want to share our YouTube picks with you. So if you want to become even more familiar with Salome before hearing it this weekend, you can go to the He Sang, She Sang show page at WQXR.org and uh, watch these videos for yourself. Paul, what did you bring for us today? (laughs) I've been a huge fan of Salome since I heard it on the radio in the early 60s. And um, I didn't know anything about it except... We had had the lesson in Sunday school a few weeks before, so I thought, oh, I know what they're going to be singing about. And it turned out I didn't know what they were going to be singing about at all. So I've been listening to this since the early 60s, and I'm a nut about singers of the past, especially historic live performances, because they're often so different from what we have today. I'm not saying they're necessarily better, but they're different. And... In 1949, a sensational soprano named Luba Velich made her debut as Salome in the same performance as the the great conductor, Fritz Reiner, was making his debut. And it was a sensation. One of the reasons is because she was one of those few sopranos who had the power to project over the orchestra at the key moments, but her voice sounded sort of innocent and sweet. It was a very girlish voice. The conductor, Fritz Reiner, always referred to her as that Bulgarian bombshell because (laughs) she was explosive on stage, totally uninhibited, had long red hair, and she just really got into it. Anybody who saw those performances remembered them vividly. In fact, there was a young vocal student at Juilliard from Mississippi named Leontine Price. Hmm, I, think I've, I think I've heard that name. Yeah. And she saw one of the performances, and she said later that convinced her she had to go into opera. So this final scene, um, I think, captures a lot of it, and it shows just how demented she was, and yet she's singing it brilliantly. Wow, so check that video out on the He Sang, She Sang show page. And um, Maren, what do you got for us? Um, something much more contemporary. There was a production by director David McVicker at the Royal Opera House um, that I saw when I was living over in England with Nadja Michael singing the role of Salome. And this video is of that final scene, and it's just so eerie and chilling and creepy um, and really gorgeously kind of extravagantly sung. You see her you know, go from the floor rolling around with this head and kissing it to standing and delivering some of the the biggest vocal moments in the opera and absolutely covered in blood. She's basically wearing a white nightgown that's just soaked through with the blood of John the Baptist, and she looks absolutely insane, and it's it's quite something to watch and to hear. She sounds beautiful as well. There's also like a creepy naked guy in this in this scene, too, that ends up... Is he the one who kills her in the end? I think he is. What's up with that? Well, someone has to do it. There's the... Uh, there's an execution. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, but everybody's got their clothes on except this one really ripped, buff dude. I can't say I remember. It's a good question. I don't know. Paul, you're nodding your head. Yeah, he was the executioner, and... I- I don't know why he was naked, but I don't think there were many complaints about it. No, I mean, <laughs> that was a great maybe, shame. Maybe he didn't want to get blood on his clothes. <laughs> it's fair. Yeah, fair, fair enough. There's also on YouTube a complete version of a commercially made performance of Salome, a film that was made by the famous German director Gottfried Friedrich with the late Karl Berm, 
conducting. He was very closely associated with Strauss. In fact, Strauss dedicated one of his operas to Dr. Berman. Uh, and it stars Teresa Stratus, who is a familiar figure to New York audiences, certainly. So it's a fun commercial performance. It's also musically a very good performance. And the whole opera is available on uh, YouTube. Nice. So we have all three of those videos up on the He Sang, She Sang show page at wqxr.org for you to enjoy on your own time. So there it is. He Sang, She Sang. Thank you so much, Paul Thomason, for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. It was a real treat. My name is Mike Schaub. I'm Marin Lazian. And this was He Sang, She Sang from WQXR. Thank you for listening.